would you like to do a dole? That would be great. Yeah, you, you should. Time? Yeah, yeah. Have you got time? I've got time. So we're now going to put in 500 grams of flour. You want to be as accurate as you can, see. So we've got our 500 grams of flour, right? 10 grams of salt, which we'll pop in there. Welcome to Cereal from Farmerama. This is episode one, Flour, Water, Salt. Rapeseed oil, so emulsified. It doesn't, it, it doesn't matter if it's fluent, it's almost better if it's not. Diglycerides. Yeah, don't, if you have to stumble over something, that's fine. Okay, just because okay? it sounds, you're trying to accentuate how odd, like, mm. how many ingredients there are. Wheat flour, water, yeast. Wholemeal wheat flour, water. Wheat flour wheat with gluten, calcium, iron, yeast, niacin, B3, and thiamine, B1. Rapeseed oil. Rapeseed oil. Salt, salt, spirit vinegar, wholemeal wheat flour, water, yeast, salt, vinegar, flavoring, soya flour, preservative, calcium propionate, calcium carbonate, vegetable oils, caramelized sugar, rapeseed, sustainable palm, emulsifier, E470, mono and diacetyl, tartaric acid, esters of mono and diglycerides of, of fatty, fatty acids, acids, palm oil, soya flour, vitamin and mineral premix sodium steroil to lac maltodextrin niacin iron vitamin b6 thiamine folic acid Soil vitamin flour, d preservative, preservative which is calcium, calcium propionate, propionate flour treatment agent ascorbic acid, acid vitamin c bread how did something so basic so fundamental get so complicated How have the needs of industrial production come to dictate the way that seeds are bred, grain is grown, flour is milled, and bread is baked and eaten? And what impact has that had on everyone involved? Over the course of this series, we'll be looking for answers to those questions. And we'll be meeting just a few of the many people who are imagining and building alternative models. Through these encounters, we'll be exploring the past, present and possible futures of grain in the UK and beyond. Some of it might seem a bit niche, a bit esoteric. But believe me, if you eat food, you have a stake in this story. First though, why start with bread? Well, not only is it a staple food, it has huge symbolic significance as well. Bread is a mainstay not just of meals, but of language. Bread and roses. The bread of life. My bread and butter. Living on the bread line. Our daily bread. Know which side your bread is buttered on. The breadwinner. Breaking bread together. The word companion literally means someone you share bread with. Bread is, is actually almost an emotional thing. Chris McCormack a home baker also known as Govan Hill Breadman. I have given bread to people and friends who, you know, just go, thanks Chris, or, you know, that's great. And then they phone you up and go, oh, I really enjoyed that, it was brilliant. And then I've given it to people who have come to tears because you've given them a loaf of bread. So bread is, bread is a very, very special thing. But if you make it yourself and make it with love, it's even more special. And on a practical level, Bread is a lens through which we can explore our food system more broadly. 
The radical changes that bread has undergone are revealing of much wider truths about our relationships to food, to farmers, to the land, the environment and to each other. I think people have a, a very deep connection to bread. That's Kimberly Bell, founder of Small Food Bakery in Nottingham. And even if you don't know anything about farming, there's something incredibly powerful about standing in the middle of a wheat field just before it's harvest. Uh, we know that on some innate level. So although it's a massively devalued food, I think it was a, a good starting point for us to really look at the food system and look at how we might do something differently or explore other ways of looking at it. I think bread is one of the foods that has been completely devalued by our monopoly food system. And we find ourselves in this bizarre situation where the staple foods that we rely on for most of our energy have become very poor quality on the whole. And we spend most of our grocery money on things that you'd really probably deem luxuries and the industry has convinced us that they're necessary. Bread is just one of the most perfect examples of that. And when you look at every single step of the chain, you realise that there's problems. There's missing value at every single step, whether it's at the bakery where shortcuts may be being taken to try and sell people or market to people falsities, right through to you know getting out on the arable farms and you suddenly realise we've got huge problems and mismatches of value where the farmer just simply isn't getting enough money to cover the cost of production. I'm pretty sure that also bread's an interesting enough product. It has a kind of emotive value to it that does open people's eyes to thinking about these things. I think bread is a really interesting space to start from because it's something that everybody has experience of. Chelsea Marshall from Scotland The Bread. It's such an important part of our just ordinary natural cuisine in our lives here in Scotland and across Europe and North America. But we don't see where it comes from. It's different than growing carrots in your back garden or starting a little tiny plot of cherry tomatoes. Very, very few people have actually seen cereals grow in their own spaces and places and understand or tend to think about or are encouraged to think about where that comes from. In some ways, that's what makes all of the problems with our bread supply easier to hide. It's not as natural for people to understand or, or see that whole process take place. But the problem I would describe is that generally people are quite unhappy with the system and I think if you just take that as a base point there are many different strands, you know, many different wormholes you could go down to explore what, how that unhappiness manifests itself. But whether people are aware of it or not, I'm pretty sure there isn't very many people out there who are happy with the current food system. Farmers are certainly not getting a good deal and I think not many people realise that, for example, the rate of farmer suicides in this country is higher than it's ever been. I think it's an incredibly challenging job. It's a very sacred position to hold in our society and currently it's one that our society doesn't hold as being sacred. And so there's this huge like mismatch, basically, of values. It's worth noting that small food like the other bakeries we'll hear about, is rather more than a bakery. It's also an engine of change, a pioneer in rehumanizing food systems, rebuilding direct relationships between consumers and bakers, bakers and farmers, farmers and millers. We'll be hearing more about their work and their bread later in the series. For now, back to Kim. 
the way I saw it and still see it in the beginning was that the supermarkets have got this kind of collective monopoly hold over us. You know, 97% of all of our food retailers bought through supermarket systems. And I think there's this myth in the UK particularly that we have freedom of choice, that the supermarkets are providing us with choice. But it's my belief that they're not providing us with any choice at all and they're actually providing us with a very one-dimensional offer, which has some positives, but for me the negatives completely outweigh any positives that they're able to provide. What I've really come to understand or come to believe through my investigations with Small Food Bakery is that the system that we build to deliver our food actually ends up dictating the cuisine that we have. The cuisine that we have is pretty influential in terms of people's health, both physical and mental. It's a truism to say that everything's connected to everything. Andrew Whitley, co-founder of the Real Bread campaign and Scotland the Bread. But certainly in bread terms, you can see how you can go from a big issue such as a society afflicted by increasing levels of mental ill health and the nature of the genetics of the plants that are being grown for that bread and the industrial system which is closing its eyes to all the little steps it takes in the service of shareholder profit, it has to be said, to make that effectively as disagreeable as possible to its, to its consumers. Which brings us to an important question. Here's Teo Lafargue from Riverside Bakery in Stirling. It's completely possible to make bread that is digestible, tasty, ecologically sound, sustainable, only using three simple ingredients, flour, water and salt. Why wouldn't we make real bread? I mean, in simple terms, it's about taking shortcuts, which at the time seem reasonable and sensible, if your main objective is to make more bread per hour with fewer people and at the lowest possible price. If that is your objective, then the current system has been spectacularly successful. It's just that it's become increasingly less popular with the very consumers it's supposed to be serving, for one simple reason, that it doesn't agree with their guts. Increasing numbers of people are cutting gluten out of their diets. Gluten being a group of proteins found in wheat as well as other grains like rye, spelt and barley. 12% of people in the UK now say they follow a gluten-free diet. There's been an explosion in bread marketed as free from. Around 1% of the population is thought to suffer from celiac disease, an autoimmune condition where gluten causes the body's immune system to attack itself. And wheat allergy is an allergic reaction to proteins found in wheat. But beyond that, there's a much larger group of people who seem to have some other kind of sensitivity or reaction to wheat from mild bloating to serious pain. From being the cornerstone of our diets, it seems that for many people, bread has become at best a guilty indulgence or at worst, something to be completely avoided. It's just taken a long time to suggest that there's an alternative which involves a wholesale, a radical rethink of the industrial method, which is where we come to artisan or small-scale baking. And the thing that defines that is, above all, apart from a, a more human-facing choice of raw materials and an absence of additives is actually this question of fermentation. Fermentation, the chemical breakdown of a substance by bacteria, yeasts or other microorganisms. In this case, the fermentation of flour by wild yeasts and lactic acid bacteria, which is what happens in sourdough baking. 
In some ways, fermentation means the process of digestion starts before we eat. We know now that's the thing, the secret key. It increases digestibility, what's called bioavailability or bioaccessibility of the, of the minerals that are in the, in the flour. For instance, industrial wholemeal is not fermented, so the phytic acid, which is a natural component of the, the bran of, of whole grain cereals, which will be in there, locks up the calcium and iron, magnesium and things like that to a considerable extent so that although they're sort of on the label as being potential nutritional components, they don't actually become available to your body. So fermentation allows certain components of the grain that we can't easily digest to become more digestible. And it also unlocks nutrients that our bodies can't otherwise make use of. In other words, just because a nutrient is present in a food, like a loaf of bread, that doesn't necessarily mean it's in a form your body can access and make use of. But you're never told that, so you think you're doing something healthy by eating a wholemeal bread from a big manufacturer in a sliced brick form. Actually, it would be very instructive if the manufacturers were forced to say how much of that was actually available to your body, because otherwise it's a fiction, and it's a misleading fiction. So how did we get here? It's a long, complicated and contentious story, too long to recount in full here. But it's important to remember that at every step in the process, there was some kind of logic. It's only when all those steps are considered together that our current bread system's illogic, its utter dysfunction, becomes clear. It's a story Andrew Whitley has spent many years piecing together. Back in 1976, he set up a small bakery in Cumbria, where he started baking wholemeal loaves with stone ground flour from a local watermill. At the time, a fairly wacky venture. And then, in the late 1980s, he was spurred to embark on a research journey that continues to this day. I'd had a long history of my own customers coming to me and saying, can you explain to me why I can eat your bread without any ill effects, but I can't eat so-called shop bread? And it was really trying to understand the biochemistry of that, which led me into realising how complicated that is for a non-scientist anyway, and also how many tendrils it sends out in all kinds of directions connected with the supply of grain, geopolitics, globalisation, imperialism, you know, all that kind of thing. At this point, we could trace the story back as far as we want, thousands or even tens of thousands of years. But for now, let's skip back a few centuries to a point in relatively recent British history when there was a shift away from growing wheat suitable for making bread towards importing bread-making wheat from abroad. In other words... What one might call globalisation mark one, which was the gradual appearance from the late 18th century onwards of harder grains coming in from cheap sources in Russia initially and then later Argentina and the New World when it was opened up. When it comes to wheat, hard means high in protein, including gluten. Soft wheat contains less gluten. Generally speaking, it's easier to make bread with harder, higher-gluten wheat. In any case, the wheat British farmers had been growing domestically was softer than the wheat now being imported from abroad. The fascinating thing is that this was an example of something that we see nowadays in other sectors, where very poor people are growing crops in conditions of exploitation. Remember that the Russians had serfdom them until 1861, so if we're talking about 1800, shiploads of grain coming down, filled by 
peasant carts coming down to Odessa, drawn by horses, having been harvested completely by hand, filling the clippers coming from Odessa round to Liverpool and London to feed the urban working class of Britain. And obviously it had an effect on the famous dispute between the manufacturers and landowners over the Corn Laws, which were essentially a protectionist measure to stop the importation of grain when there was a glut, so that the local producers still could sell their grain at a reasonable price. The battle was won in those days by the manufacturers, who essentially wanted to be able to bring in cheaper grain so that they didn't have to pay their workers so much, just above starvation wages, so that they could then sell their manufacturers abroad at competitive prices, and so the thing went on. And for the first industrialised country, this was a massively important issue because it's all about competitive advantage. But the effect of that, when you look at it in the social realm, is that people coming off the land, being forced off the land with their houses or huts being destroyed behind them, more or less, to populate the tenements of Bradford, Halifax and Leeds and places to work in mills, they didn't have the ability to provide themselves with basic foods anymore. They certainly couldn't grow any, and they didn't have much access to uh, you know, markets with fresh fruit and vegetables and so on, and they didn't have any kitchens to cook. So they fell back on the first convenience food, which was industrial bread. So there was a massive pressure to increase the production of cheap bread. But then war. Relying on imported grains to make bread was no longer viable. But by now, the system had been built around those imported grains. Britain's milling and baking infrastructure was not suited to using homegrown wheat. The attempt to reverse the importation of grain because it was so expensive in a country that was bankrupt after the war was really important economically. But local farmers didn't have the varieties that would suit the technology that had developed to make bread from imported grains. So they squared that circle by the use of high-speed mixing and additives. Initially, potassium bromate, azodicarbonamide, chemical additives, which had an effect of strengthening the gluten in locally grown wheats. And that's just one strand following the logic of changes in variety and source of wheat, feeding through to a change in technology and a change in bread-making method, which then gathered speed in the 1960s with the Chorleywood bread process. Chorleywood. Whether or not you've heard of it, you've almost definitely eaten its products. The technique was invented in 1961, and it allowed lower protein, or softer wheats, to be used to make bread. The Chorleywood bread process essentially is a way of taking flour, water, yeast and additives and mixing it extremely quickly in very high-speed mixers, which put in a large amount of energy very quickly, sort of whipping almost, rather than slow mixing of dough, such as one would do at home. And... The combination of the the chemistry and the energy input means that the resulting dough forms a gluten structure which can capture little bubbles of gas from the yeast fermentation and rise into a very, very even structure, which is very close so that there are no holes in the bread when you cut it because you don't want holes in a sandwich or toast or whatever. And yet it's very, very light, so it expands enormously. And that's really the name of the game. So, maximum expansion of the dough in the minimum time. Why is that significant? The key sort of way in which that is translated into industrial efficiency or output per person is by reducing to virtually zero 
the actual time of fermentation. Now, clearly, some fermentation has to happen because yeast's function in a dough is to turn sugars derived from the starches in the in the flour into carbon dioxide and alcohol. Carbon dioxide is the gas that aerates the bread. So that's got to happen, but in Chorley Wood it happens almost entirely in the rising in the tin, which is something that they haven't succeeded in speeding up to no time at all. But the stage which always used to take the majority of time, which was fermentation of the dough to not just to develop the gluten structure so that it would trap lots of gas and make a light loaf, but also to develop a flavour, a roundness, a kind of ripeness of the dough that bakers used to talk about. So it rises in the tin really quickly and then is baked. And the biggest chunk of time, believe it or not, in the whole baking process from flour to, to wrap loaf is in the cooling of the loaf so that you can slice it because you can't slice the bread until it's cool, otherwise it gunges up the slicer. Which is, in a sense, an incredible demonstration of industrial possibility there's no inherent reason other than chasing low price and uh, convenience understood as uh, a kind of indefinite shelf life conferred by preservatives and crumb softening enzymes, which are a relatively new thing, but which mean that the texture of the loaf doesn't change from day to day, week to week after baking. There's no time in human history when people have eaten food that doesn't actually age in a natural way because it's been chemically arrested, a kind of... Peter Pan bread, I call it, really, because, you know, it stays permanently young, but it's a fairly strange kind of youth that is conferred by these crumb-softening enzymes. So Chorley Wood allows us to skip the long fermentation process that was previously necessary. The result? More loaves, more quickly, with far less human input. And it seems that more and more people are finding that they can't stomach it. We're now understanding the the depth of that disagreement between the raw materials and the process and the guts. And there isn't a silver bullet. We can't just sort of say, oh, we need a bit of gene editing of the wheat to change this, or we need to stick a bit of dried sourdough powder into our bread and call it sourdough, which is what the large manufacturers are doing now, which is a a scandalous theft of intellectual property, really, from the real bakers who have discovered in practice and taken the trouble to hone the skills, which show that Long fermentation with sourdough lactic acid bacteria is one of those traditional steps in baking that human beings have been practicing without really understanding what they were doing necessarily for thousands of years. And it's vitally important to detoxifying aspects of wheat that disagree with certain people, but also in opening up the wheat or rye or barley or whatever it is to enable the human body to benefit from the nutritional components that are in there, and crucially to stimulate that diversity in the gut, which we're now seeing as important to both digestive health and, interestingly and significantly, to mental health as well. There's a growing body of scientific research into the way our guts and our brains interact, including evidence that our gut microbes communicate with our nervous system by producing neurotransmitters, chemicals that play a crucial role in our mental health. The impact of fermented foods, such as sourdough, is an area of particular interest. Basically, gut feeling isn't a figure of speech. Our bodies are intricate systems. It stands to reason that what we eat affects how we function mentally, how we think, and how we feel. Okay, so we've got a taste of what's wrong with industrial bread. What's the alternative? Andrew Whitley refers to it as real bread. 
There are several key differences between Chorleywood processed bread, which is essentially the the industrial bread that sort of 80 to 90% of the market is supplied with in the UK at the moment, and so-called artisan bread or real bread. Um, The real bread campaign standard is simply flour, water, yeast and salt and no additives or processing aids, which is a technical definition of things which are normally not even mentioned on the label, but which are put into the production process. These additives are meticulously listed in Bread Matters, Andrew Whitley's book, which was published in 2009. Bread Matters started out as a kind of recipe book for home bakers. What it became was a far-reaching biography of bread, as well as a manifesto and a call to action. It lifted the curtain on what goes into the bread most of us eat every day. I published in the book tables of the additives that went into bread and the likely effects and the possible criticisms of why they might not be very good to eat and so on. And when I was promoting the book and talking to various groups around the country, people said, do you know, we didn't really realise it was as bad as this. What are we going to do about it? And there was a sort of general murmuring about why don't we start a campaign? Andrew took the idea to sustain a charity which describes itself as an alliance for better food and farming. And so the Real Bread campaign was launched. First of all, it established a very simple definition of real bread, which was bread made without additives. And although that wasn't everything that I meant by real bread, and I had a sort of series of criteria, which luckily, I think, and rightly, Sussain said, um, might be better to leave it a little bit wider to start with, and then we can gradually encourage people to up their game, as it were, towards you know, choosing grain for nutritional quality or organic growing or long fermentation, specifically with sourdough. All of those things are very much recommended and listed in the Real Bread campaign's criteria, but they aren't the minimum requirement. So we're trying to encourage people to kind of get off the additives first. And when you bake without additives, it almost pushes you anyway into thinking much more about fermentation because Things like gluten development and handling the dough are so much easier if you do it in a long process rather than trying to mimic Chorley wood with a very short fermentation, lots of yeast and no time. And so certain connections, possible domino effects, start to become apparent. A change in one part of the food system can ultimately ripple right across it. For example, baking or eating real bread, and perhaps especially sourdough, encourages or maybe even forces you into a closer relationship with its ingredients. And that closer relationship might lead to questions about where those ingredients come from, how they were processed, who grew them, under what conditions and at what scale, as well as how the way those ingredients are transformed into bread will affect the people who eat it. That's the difference between artisan bread and industrial bread, that one is trying to do its very best using human skill and patience to nourish healthy people. The other is trying to make profits out of selling a thing which we call bread. It'll become clear in future episodes that the way we make our bread, or as consumers, the kind of bread we choose to buy, has a huge trickle-down effect all the way back along the production chain. In the next episode, we'll go back to the start of that chain, to the seed. Thanks for listening to this episode of Serial. Subscribe to Farmerama to hear the rest of the series. You can find us on your favourite podcast app, on SoundCloud, or at farmerama.co. 
If you enjoy the series, please spread the word. And if you'd like to support Farmerama, visit patreon.com forward slash Farmerama. Serial is produced and edited by me, Katie Revel, with Abby Rose and Joe Barrett. Susie McCarthy and Hannah Sutherland also worked on the series. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. A huge personal thank you to everyone who's contributed to Serial. In this episode, we heard from Chris McCormack, Kimberly Bell, Chelsea Marshall, Andrew Whitley and Theo Lafargue. Thanks also to Christopher, Ross, Jess, Sabine and Ewan for lending me your voices. Serial is made possible by support from the Roddick Foundation.